Well, good morning. I'm going to give this a try on a different Bluetooth headset, uh, but again, considering it's 40 degrees Celsius, ooh, I have an air conditioner running, so I apologize for it not being perfect. But I'd just love to share with you um, some insights. I mean, I'm certainly not at a place where I can share, you know, perfectly cogent and reasoned and uh, pre-planned out uh, expressions. Remember that. Gosh, when I started this podcast, I could barely use a computer. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, to the extent that I used computers, uh, for example, the way I learned to use computers is about, I don't know, 20 years. I won't go into the entire details, but I got a computer, and this is how I got through my first year of college, because I spent eight hours doing something that would take your average kid maybe an hour. Right? So I did learn computers. But to do the basic stuff took me weeks, weeks, and weeks, and months. Uh, but unlike other people, because of being uh, dyslexic, neurodivergent, whatever you want to call this thing here, I call it developmentally challenged because of uh, early trauma, I was unable to... I mean, sorry, I was, it's kind of a backwards thing. So I was talking, I was going to mention uh, Mortimer Alder. He wrote a book called How to Read. And he, and he followed it up with how to speak and how to think, I think, I believe. But in it, he talks about four types of reading, so that's what I was getting at. I believe that the dyslexics are unable to read the first two styles, right, which is just basic cursory or uh, oh, I can't remember the terms that he used. Uh, I don't have the right notebook in front of me. Uh, but I argue it's what most people do. I call the first two types of reading survival reading. Right, that's where you read a sign uh, just to see if you need to be concerned about instructions, or you know what I mean. You read a contract, uh, you just peruse it quickly to see if there's anything that uh, jumps out at you. That you know, like we've talked about this idea of um, does this require uh, my higher order thinking to kick in? Does it require me to uh, jump out of my auto? Um, autopilot mode, uh, system one, system two, type one, type two sort of thinking, right? Uh, so long story short, what I've come to realize is the real truth in this is a term that's actually, I found out, is used, uh, but it's used as a synonym for neurodiversity. They call it neuroatypical. And I think that's a mistake, because if you look at neuroatypical, that means very specifically individual. And I argue, well, geez, isn't everybody neurally atypical? We are ourselves. So uh, another little um, turn of the phrase that I, uh, that I wrote is there is only one way, one correct way of thinking, and that is your way. So this neural atypical idea is exactly what we should be looking at here. There is no uh, traditional way of thinking. There may have been some people who thought that way and then they just through peer pressure, tradition, ceremony, uh, just made everyone conform. Right? And so that's why I mentioned that everyone's on a spectrum because not everyone was able to conform uh, to this, you know, typical neural uh, cognition style. But again, this is where Temple Grandin comes in, this uh, high-functioning autistic who was able to write a book uh, called The Autistic Brain. In it, she talks about this spectrum. She talks about how many people are on the spectrum. She talks about how people who are mild to extreme. But I go one step further, and I argue we are all on the spectrum. And the only reason why we believe there's such a thing as a neural typical is because we don't want to admit that we are atypical ourselves. So, so many of us gaslight ourselves, gaslight each other into believing that we think or feel or operate a certain way. In reality, we don't. And the only time we really see this disconnect is when someone is so neurally atypical, right, on the spectrum, Asperger's or autism, they're so extreme that they just don't fit into society. They're unable to, uh, to fit. They have some really severe um, issues, as it were. So just as a dispatch for what I'm working on this morning, 
uh, began, uh, I believe, let me just see, yeah, so we began with George Orwell, right, George Orwell, actually, no, I began with um, Jordan Peterson, somebody put together a little video on Jordan Peterson's uh, thoughts on autism, um, But what I did is I watched that. I took my notes in another book. And then uh, I went on from there to George Orwell because it actually does relate. Um, and then I have actually transcribed these notes into, uh, into the notebook here. Uh, so technically it was Jordan Peterson's first. But because Jordan Peterson uh, flows into the Temple Grandin, which was the next thing, and I'm currently working on Temple Grandin, I'll mention George Orwell first. So what's important is not so much what most people understand. George Orwell, 1984, um, Animal Farm. Animal Farm written as an allegory for Stalinist Russia, not communism itself per se. But the idea here was a warning of the cult of personality. And what's funny is he predicted this. Because after the death of Stalin, that's exactly what we call the letter that Khrushchev wrote. Because Khrushchev was not able to condemn Stalinism. So he had to condemn Stalin himself. But most importantly, most of the really salient and, uh, what would you call it, um, really uh, important uh, uh, salient points that Orwell made were in some of these other articles he wrote, not particularly in the books. Right. So I mentioned Towards European Unity, one of his later articles, Pleasure Spots. Uh, was just a funny little piece that he, uh, but neither here nor there. The lion and the unicorn was also this warning, right? Again, the lion versus the unicorn. You got to remember how well educated uh, Nietzsche was. So there's a lot of allegory in that, right? The lion. I mean, for me, I think of uh, Nietzsche's line, right, where you're trying to create something new, and then the unicorn, an idea of fantasy. But Orwell talks about fascism. And the reason why I consider this as relating is if the entire world is neural atypical, but you have a few people who want to convince or conform everybody into what they consider to be typical, is that not fascism? And the same situation we're in as far as societal perspective and cognition could be compared to Orwell's uh, critique of uh, democratic socialism or socialism, communism, what have you want to say. Again, it was society, political, and now I'm talking about education. So really, I'm beginning uh, at the base. In the Chinese Book of Change, the Yijing, there is a hexagram called Bi, which is, uh, uh, Bi is considered the foundation of uh, everything, right? So society, uh, community, uh, right, uh, a country or an empire uh, breaks down into smaller groups, right, villages, hamlets, and then it, it and and they had this idea that a village was made up of uh, blocks, which is also called B of five households, but each household themselves was a B was a was a foundation, and within the uh, within the uh, the household, this was why individuality matters so much. Something that's been lost in recent years because that's problematic to certain political uh, ideologies. This individuality and the importance of the individual, right? The, the Delphic maxim, know thyself. It's present in the I Ching as well, right? Because over and over again it talks about if your kindness is uh, ill-received, it's not their mistake. In the I Ching it reminds us to look inward and to... Uh, reevaluate our own um, idea of what kindness is. And it works so often, it's unbelievable. The barrier to this uh, healing protocol is your own hubris. You don't believe. Uh, but the greatest um, quote that I've come across recently was this idea that it is wrong to see anyone as less than. The only person that you should see as less than anyone else is yourself. It's absolutely beautiful. I really love that idea. Uh, very similar, and it's probably where uh, Hemingway got the quote that I used to adore. This idea, it is not honorable to be better than somebody else. 
it is only honorable to be better than your previous self, right? This is why I argue why so many people misunderstand uh, postmodernism, right? It was a reaction to modernism not having raised all boats as it had intended. So it talks about this identity. But if meaning is arbitrary and you apply it as necessary, you must be guided by the same ethos, right? Uh, logos. So it's moral, it's right, it's what works best for you, your loved ones, your family, uh, the, the family uh, clan, the village, you name it. Society itself is founded on this idea of people doing what's best for themselves, hopefully, and what is best for the system uh, as a whole, the greater uh, system, right? So he talks about fascism uh, requires the study of socialism because he says socialism um, could prevent the rise of fascism because he says it's in this inequality in society. It's not that different from uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' idea of a double consciousness. When you're treated different from how you see yourself, again, I'm not talking about uh, you don't treat me the way I want to identify as I'm a ship. You must treat me like a ship. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is if you look in the mirror and you see a human being and somebody treats you less than, that's this double consciousness. And Du Bois, remember, wrote about not just the colored folks or um, uh, it's been retitled uh, as Souls of the Black Folks. Uh, but he mentioned the Irishman, the Hungarian. There's a big, long list. I highly recommend you read the book, uh, uh, Souls of the Black Folk by uh, W.B. Du Bois. And this idea of a double consciousness. When someone treats you as less than or... I mean, it's, it's funny, when it comes to neuro neurodivergence, uh, a great example that's being bandied about right now is this idea that think of neurodivergence as um, playing a video game on uh, hard setting. But everyone is telling you that, no, dude, it's set to easy. Why do you keep failing? So being diagnosed as neurodivergent, or in what I'm saying here, realizing that there is only one way to think, and that's your way, therefore we're all very atypical, realizing that no two experiences are alike, that's the empowering thing. So the way that that uh, um, example goes is uh, it doesn't make playing this video game easier, but it reduces that double consciousness or the trauma of being gaslit. So in this case, knowing that the game is set to hard makes it much more understandable, allows you to strategize. Otherwise, we develop... Um, well, a trauma which can lead, we've talked about this before, the, the human creature, when you're sold a bill of goods, we tend to vengeance, not, uh, you know, understanding or forgiveness. And so again, uh, on the, uh, the, the, the line of, of Orwell, our system leaves so many behind that fascism is inevitable without a change of state. And I wrote that just to be a play on words, right? We have to change the state, of, right? Because Orwell was talking about politics. For me, I'm talking about person, right? Identity, cognition, right? So to change your state, manage your emotional regulation, manage your understanding, you know, we get that. So that's why I argue about this idea of neo-postmodernism, uh, which of an example is an attempt to ignore this truth about postmodernism. Right, this idea that uh, postmodernism grew up as a reaction to modernism, having left people behind. But postmodernism, not wanting, well, sorry, neo-postmodernism, not wanting to admit that even postmodernism left lots of people behind. Neo-postmodernism, in my opinion, is a reaction to this truth that they don't want to admit. Why? Because they fear one thing more than anything else. Meta. Meta. Not the Sanskrit with the double T, right? I'm talking about the, 
meta in a Western perspective, M-E-T-A. This is something more, something more. They fear what we should have evolved into, which is meta-modernism, right? It scares them. Very similar to the idea that Dostoevsky talked about that, yes, 2 plus 2 should equal 4. I'm going to get into this with Orwell, right? That's, he calls it objective truth. I have a problem with objective truth, but I understand what he means. He's not, not talking about the, the philosophical uh, uh, thought experiment. He's just talking about, you know, 2 and 2 make 4 because that's the agreement we've made, right? We label 2 items 2, uh, and uh, four items, four. But this um, thought experiment is two plus two must sometimes equal five. And this relates to Orwell. If we continue to try to make a failed system work, in this case I'm talking about neurodiversity, so if we continue to think that everybody is on a, what would you call it, a, how would I explain that? I think our mistake is to believe that we can make people conform, if you understand what I mean. So when we continue to believe that there's one way of thinking with outliers that uh, diverge, rather than seeing that we all are outliers and we just have to find a way to work together as a system, and arguably that would be an incredible uh, benefit and improvement. Imagine taking advantage of all of our cognition, right? I talked about, uh, or did I, or just, just make notes. I talked about Sidis uh, and uh, William James. They developed the theory of us only using 10% of our brain. And I laugh because nowadays they say that's been debunked, but I, I chuckle because, no, if anything, it's been misunderstood then as it is now. The way they explain this as being debunked is with CAT scans. They say we've seen in CAT scans that uh, we use more than 10% of our brain. But if we actually look, instead of their perceived perception of what they meant, and try to look outside the box and maybe understand what they may have meant, or maybe they just didn't have the science to understand, but it doesn't matter. I think it's still very salient because when we look at a CAT scan, sure, more than just 10% of the brain can get used, but it seems to light up like fireworks under a CAT scan, normal cognition, right? Certain areas will light up, right? Certain areas will get bright and remain bright for a certain period of time and then go dull. I argue that Citus and James 10% theory is 100% proven now. Because, as example, uh, Boris Sidis had a son. Uh, he named him after William James, the psychologist. Uh, and he and his wife, his wife was also a doctor, uh, a lady doctor at a time when that was a difficult thing to achieve. So they put all of their money into trying to prove this theory that we are so much more, we're infinitely more potential uh, have infinitely more potentiality as a human creature than we give ourselves credit. So they taught this kid to read and write in French by the age of two. And he could speak six languages and all this other uh, stuff. He went to uh, uh, Harvard for uh, one subject and then he was going to uh, Yale for, uh, for law later. It was really quite crazy. Long story short, what ended up is, is he was very brilliant. He did actually learn a lot and really did change our world. But likely he was on the autism spectrum. So highly functioning in certain areas, but very deficient in others. Certainly socialization, which is what Temple Grandin gets into. This idea that the autistic, it's called social barrier to disease, that the autistic um, are made worse by these societal barriers. And arguably, they're not dysfunctional in that they're, they're uh, alternately functional. So imagine if most people can jump hurdles, but can't go under. But some people, uh, did I say that? Most people can jump hurdles, but cannot go under. 
but some people cannot jump hurdles but can go under. Did I even say that right? I apologize. Long story short, imagine if some people could do something a certain way while others could not, but they could do it in an alternate way. But if we bar them from being able to accomplish it in any way but the official way, in fact, Star Trek has this, um, what is it called, the uh, Kobayashi Maru. It's this uh, idea that it's a final test for uh, starship captains. It's this unwinnable situation, right? Uh, how do they handle it? It was originally designed as a test of leadership. How can they uh, manage, uh, what would you call that, uh, uh, a hopeless situation? But in the end, um, I believe it was Kirk who did something out of the box, did something that was technically against the rules, and changed all of the uh, the perceived understanding. And the reaction at first was, you're a cheater! But arguably, no. He just subverted expectations. And so many of these normies, either because they can't think outside of the box, or because they've spent so much time compromising, and it's like a Stockholm Syndrome, they will actually react to those who are diverging, trying to get them to conform again. Right? So that's why I argue sometimes 2 plus 2 needs to equal 5. Right? Sometimes weird out-of-the-box thinking is necessary. Right? So in Orwell's work, uh, The Prevention of Literature, Right? This is where we get into this idea of 2 plus 2 equals 4. He talks about that as soon as they try to make 2 plus 2 equal 5, that's when everything starts to break down. Right? Don't misunderstand. We still need to keep the truth that 2 plus 2 is 4, but sometimes have the understanding that sometimes 2 plus 2 equals 5, either from the perception of some or sheer necessity, or things change. Remember, existence is pure flux, right? So if nothing is permanent, except for the second law of thermodynamics, that's a whole separate discussion, right? If energy is transformed constantly, consider that impermanence. That even fits into the second law of thermodynamics. It's a dance between entropy and use. Not pattern, but usefulness. So I argue that skill is simply experience compounded. So to take that to chaos uh, and order, I don't believe there is much of a difference between chaos and order. I think the difference is our perception. So chaos is kind of like the dyslexic who can't see into the picture. Like the words are vibrating on the page. And whereas order is very similar to those who have decided on an agreed narrative. So we lie in the middle somewhere in reality, but we have two opposite spectrums that believe, no, everything is chaos. Two and two is five. No, everything is order. Two and two is four. But in reality, the real truth is, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's neither. Maybe we were wrong all along. This is the Tetralemma, the Chattiscotti. This is why I say how dreadfully important doubt is, especially in one own, one's own uh, perception and opinions and conclusions and confidence and all this jazz. Right? Because I say, uh, here is, so, um, so I see he said truth is mandatory. He went into his new speak. I talk about how I've invented this new thought or double think, right? Uh, that there's no way, I'm starting to wonder if there is people who truly believe this narrative that isn't true, but I really don't see that people believe some of the stuff they spout. So that's why I call it this double think, that they hold within them contrarian truths. Right? They have a truth they've always known to be true and is empirically true often, but then they have another truth that is one that they have chosen 
to believe. And we've talked about this before. They call it dramaturgy. Um, Jung called it the meaning that quickens. Uh, the, uh, what did he call it? The, the happy fiction. So we do have to gaslight ourselves. But don't be like a student of Sartre who only read his stuff in English and think that everything is arbitrary. Don't forget that we are meant to be guided by very specific truths. Uh, I'll quote uh, Mortimer Alder when he says, uh, Ethos, pethos, logos, taxos, and lexos. So we need to be guided by our ethics, our truths, what we believe and hold to be true, our emotions, our goals, our intentions, our structure, and our style. To ignore these truths is to risk your health. This is what trauma is. Uh, Carl Friston's free energy principle talks about surprise. Surprise is when your expectations are um, subverted. So he says that your choice is to accept that you were wrong, either in your expectations or your predictions, and to work with the data that you uh, have found, with the, new, the new information. And he argues this is just, he's positing, maybe, this is a possibility, maybe the surprise, the people who don't want to believe reality, like I joke about people who think they're Napoleon, right? Against all reality, I mean, he's long dead and you're not French, I mean, that's what's funny. A lot of these guys are English, and yet you're Napoleon, are you? But you don't speak any French. Okay, whatever. This is this gaslighting that's unhealthy. In fact, he talked about um, it was closer to schizophrenia uh, than anything else. And it's funny that he said that in an article that I hadn't actually read, because I joke about how we're breeding narcissists in our society. Why? Because you encourage people to be a dog-eat-dog. And we discourage the opposite of narcissism, which is openness, right? To, to do good for good's sake. I mean, you're never going to succeed with that sort of idea. And I went one step further on this study this morning to believe that um, this is also a spectrum, right? That we're actually breeding not autistic people, but we're actually by the way the system is laid out, that we're actually, um, um, like we're turning uh, people into the affect of. People are developing these qualities because that's the way the system is laid out. Um, let's see here. So the neurodivergent, we see divergence or difference, right? That's versus the neurotypical. Right? So that's the exact problem. When we either um, excise the neurodivergent or we silence them or we make them conform, then who is there to see the error? I mean, I recommend Waiting for Godot by um, Beckett, where you have these gentlemen standing around talking about how absolutely ridiculous it is they're just standing and waiting for what? Yet, none of them stop and go, well, we shouldn't then. If it's that ridiculous, why are we doing it? Right? And it's a play on this meeting. I made the joke yesterday to somebody that, um, uh, as an ex-economist, uh, now come philosopher, uh, it's a very similar joke. In economics, we joke uh, about two uh, economists standing in line to vote, and the one economist turns to the other and says, my, my wife may become. Because it's absolutely irrational. To, to vote, right? Because you can't see the direct effect of your cast vote. The same can be said in this case of the idea of... Uh, well, here we go. We'll just carry on from there. So again, the last I said was neurodivergence allows us to see what the neurotypical can't see, right? They only see 2 plus 2 equals 4. Whereas the neurodivergent is able to see 2 plus 2 is 4 and sometimes 5. If we see normal as a spectrum and that we, were all, we are all neuroatypical, right? there is only one way to think that is your way. Right? So he talks about modern inventions. And I use the movie WALL-E 
as the perfect example of what may come if we continue on this uh, path. He says, modern inventions weaken our consciousness. And this is this idea of passive consumption of content without the reciprocity of communication necessary. Like Alder, he warned us not to wait to speak, but we should listen when we speak and when we read. Right? This is the same uh, teaching that Marshall McLuhan, a great Canadian communication theorist, uh, predicted as well. He said there may come a time when we would replace old technologies with new without vetting that they were an improvement. Right? The same with the individual. Right? If you develop new habits or new skills, have you vetted whether this is an improvement? So I argue Orwell as well, likely, uh, likely either influenced McLuhan or uh, this idea might flow from a previous source. So next on the agenda here is Jordan Peterson's YouTube video that actually began this, right, to see. Because Jordan Peterson is supposed to be a psychologist, I assumed he would understand, uh, well, I, I, I hoped he would understand this, uh, especially the social uh, theory of disability better than he seems to but again uh, this is uh, classes so I guess he plays uh, he walks uh, a thin line between uh, actually Temple Grandin explains this that uh, the way we teach children language is the same way we should teach everybody right so keep them challenged but not too much too much challenge will shut off too little challenge and we're not going to learn so this Jordan Peterson video was entitled How Autism and Intelligence Connect. Right? I wanted to see what he had to say. So he goes on, he mentions almost initially Temple Grandin and her autistic brain, the book The Autistic Brain. And what he didn't mention was this idea of the social theory of disease. Right? Temple Grandin argues uh, and agrees with my theory that we're all neuroatypical in a sense and that what we categorize as divergent autism Asperger's are actually just people who have difficulty uh, surmounting the hurdles that normal society puts in place. The social barrier. Uh, she mentions Malcolm Gladwell and his book The Outliers. This is very similar. Uh, she goes on and talks about um, uh, Steve Jobs having been fascinated with calli calligraphy and why he was such a, he was a divergent, likely on the spectrum, but why he was so, um, uh, such a, an industry, uh, uh, so shake up the industry so much, right? And made a joke about uh, why the, the fonts were so nice in Apple, right? Which is great. Um, he loved calligraphy, but the fonts is a whole nother idea, uh, because we talk about this later, the fact that words can vibrate on the page for uh, the dyslexic, for the autistic, right? I see it myself, and Temple Grandin goes into this. Uh, she does a TED Talk. I think it's entitled uh, Temple Grandin, the Autistic Brain. And she talks about this idea of, um, right, uh, fluorescent lights killed me. I grew up with nothing but fluorescent lights, both uh, in school and then in the bank. It was near impossible for me. Uh, I lucked out, actually, in the bank, because what I ended up doing, this is all on my own, without anybody's permission, uh, I actually changed offices. I chose an office that didn't have a fluorescent light above it. And so I actually uh, made sure to have a uh, right window. I picked an office where, um, you know, the walls uh, didn't cover the window uh, and uh, I didn't have the fluorescent right above me. And that really did help me, right? Choosing, uh, there's uh, an app that it, uh, I use uh, it's, it's much more common in uh, Linux where it actually changed the color spectrum of the screen itself of the computer. Uh, that's why I'm, I really do love fonts. Uh, fonts and screen colors and this whole... You can see it because how long did it take for apps, and not many of them have it, but how long did it take before apps had this option uh, to change the colors of the app itself? Imagine the hubris of these people who decide uh, what do they call it, UX, uh, user experience, they decide for them what it's going to be like instead of realizing that your job is to design 
the functionality of the app. The look is second. And, and I argue that's where Steve Jobs failed. He got so obsessed, and I argue he had some issues, because if you look at the fact that he went uh, fruitopian or whatever you call it, he ate nothing but fruit, and he was very weird, right? And I argue that might have been why he was so fascinated, obsessed even, about aesthetic. And that um, for him, it was more important that it looked cool than it did something cool. And we see that today. But we went on. Uh, oh, sorry, I had a little note here uh, for Orwell, just continued on. Uh, but it's just uh, what I mentioned, that Nietzsche, uh, like Nietzsche, Orwell, uh, delves uh, into this risk uh, to our very nature, right? with convenience and distraction in our everyday life. I mentioned Marshall McLuhan. But just what I've mentioned before, uh, the idea that um, Nietzsche believed that language was the basis of consciousness. He said that if we were to go into the forest and didn't interact with anybody, would we lose the need for language? And then one step further, would we lose the ability to cognize? And I argue since, since uh, culture is the grandfather of cognition, of, of uh, consciousness, right? Uh, language is dependent on the culture and the society, right? It informs uh, what the language even means. Thereby, it truly is the grandfather of consciousness, if language is, is the father, as Nietzsche said. And so the importance of understanding, right? So that's why seeing the big picture, the neurodivergence do see you know, differences that we don't see. But this is why I argue this is proof once again that we are all on this spectrum because the, just like uh, Steve Jobs, he was so obsessed by the aesthetic that he missed very simple functionality. Or even worse, he may, be, uh, may have been unwilling to accept uh, um, something less aesthetically pleasing. The example I'd give is, say, if somebody needs say, a different shade, like a gray background to a particular app as opposed to a really bright white, he might not be okay with that because he sees it as impinging on the aesthetic of uh, the product, not realizing that his initial and arguably his main goal should be to deliver an app or something that can help somebody. Uh, the recent example I'll give is I was watching an artist talking about his uh, portable art studio, what have you, and he was talking about his fountain pens in his pack, because he, you know, sketches, it's common, they sketch with the fountain pens. And he had three identical fountain pens, and he had to put tape on them to differentiate between the different size uh, nibs, all with the same color ink, not that weird, right, a black ink. But what was weird is he had tape on the pens so he could differentiate between them. And he even openly admitted, openly admitted that the reason why, he says, I know I should have bought the pens in different colors so I can tell them apart, but he says, I have this weird thing that doesn't allow me to put in a different color, uh, a different color ink from what the color of the pen is. And so he admitted that if he got a, an orange pen, he could only put in orange ink. So that's where the disconnect is. This gentleman knows that he has this divergent thinking and yet, here's your double think that I mentioned in part one. So this gentleman knows it's wrong, yet he continues to endorse this way of thinking and acting. And so I'll go on with Jordan Peterson and what he was talking about um, when it comes to autism and intelligence. So, you know, what is intelligence? What is autism? Right? He, uh, he speaks of the archetype of a kid drawing a house or a stick figure, right? So what he mentions is, isn't it funny how almost all kids draw a house, they draw a square and they draw a tank, triangle for the roof. And he, he also mentions a joke, and I'll explain what he missed, uh, of almost all kids draw a chimney with some smoke. He said, well, that's weird. I'll explain why it's not that weird. Uh, but he hit on psychology. This is his forte, so I'm surprised he didn't mention this. Uh, 
it's a German theory, Gestalt. I've mentioned Gestalt as you can't separate the mind from the body. But Gestalt theory goes into this idea that we don't see things in its component parts. We see our world in patterns. So I do believe the example commonly given is a cat. You don't see the hair and the tail and the claws. And, you know, you see a cat. You do understand that a cat is all of these different things uh, put together. That's the stick figure. That's the house. Right? Arguably, that's the superpower of the human brain. We see... Uh, no, see, I have to change that. So we define order in chaos. So we don't see order. I argue there is no order. I think Albert Camus was right. Um, existence is absurd. Arguably, everything is in chaos, entropy. And we just have the superpower to be able to see what's salient in the chaos and use it, right? Apply it, as it were. Right? So we see patterns, we see forms. He talks about archetypes, myths. I argue this is what we do. Right? We try to shortcut these things. Uh, Carl Friston's Free Energy talks about this. So Jordan Peterson says, we see a square as a house. We see order and chaos. That's me. Uh, pattern seeing. Now when he mentioned chimneys, I argue, well that's just from folklore. That's just from all of the cartoons and the, and the books the kids read. I mean, Hansel and Gretel is a little cottage with smoke coming out of it. It's not so much an archetype as it is a cliché. So the fact that he missed that is a little funny. But again, this has to do with the 2 plus 2 equals 5. Gestalt, meta. Right? How is it we can see a stick as a person? It's the gestalt and the meta machine that is our brain. Right? So I argue once again that uh, the real problem here is we're encouraging narcissism and sociopathy, minimizing openness, uh, and that goes one step further, that we're training uh, into people these autistic qualities, these spectrum-based uh, affects. They're not on the spectrum, but they have developed these habits, these affects, as if they were. Right? So the argument is to tune your perceptions with goals, because I, I would agree with uh, Jordan Peterson that without goals, perception is worthless. We talked about this, that Jean-Paul Sartre was not wrong when he said that, you know, identity, uh, perception, meaning, very arbitrary, but if you ignore everything in our history that teaches us the importance of a goal, meaning to better the system or oneself, to just arbitrarily create something that impinges on your own best interests? Huh. That is psychopathy, right? Am I right? I'm not being mean. I'm just saying that that's that double think again, right? When you should know it just doesn't make sense. So he mentions Necker cubes, right? I argue it's probably not that different from when I mentioned um, uh, Ruben's vase. The fact that humans see this white space. We see things that are arguably not there. We see patterns. We see in images, as Temple Grandin says, images, patterns, synonyms, right? So, uh, I argue, is this dyslexics? Right? Arguably, is this not what a dyslexic is? The reason why we used to see them as less than is because they couldn't conform, and why maybe now we're seeing, seeing them as maybe more than is because they do see outside of the system and they seem to us like the Sanskrit word Siddhi, which is sometimes translated as a supernormal power. I argue it's just extreme capacity or skill. I call it supranormal powers. Uh, in uh, the, uh, the um, sutras, uh, the Buddha mentions a hunter, a really skillful hunter in his Siddhi. Right? So a skill, a talent, an ability. Uh, so this is what we were talking about. When I mention William James Sidis and his two parents who believe that they could teach this kid to do everything and anything. They believe that they could teach this kid how to use 100% of his brain. I argue they weren't wrong, but what ended up happening is, is they put the same sort of pressures to conform on their son. 
but instead of conforming to society's norms, he was being pressured to conform to their very narrow uh, theoretical um, uh, expectations and rules, what have you. Right? So the argument here is the complexity of the world is such it's impossible to understand it as a whole. This is why doubt to Charles Sanders Peirce is so important. This is why the Chattiscotti and the Tetralemma are so important in Indian and Greek philosophy. Uh, this idea, maybe this, maybe that, maybe both, maybe neither. We have to remain open. And archetypes as a form to understand our world. And how should I perceive its pattern recognition? In fact, it's funny, because this goes back to one of the first books that I read by uh, Helena Blavatsky. Uh, she was an early theosophist. And the way she explained this dualistic thinking, is how she called it, is she used the example of a mirage. If you see something off in the distance, uh, in the Western world, in the modern world, if you've never been in a desert, you could see it on a really long stretch of highway on a hot day. Have you ever seen the heat waves rising off the, uh, the tarmac uh, in an airport? Right? Uh, tarmac is also the asphalt. It's just another word. For some reason, there's Bertrand Russell's idea of how uh, language can be very contextual. Tarmac, to most people, means uh, an airport uh, runway, but it can also be a highway. When you look at uh, the tarmac uh, in the distance, the heat waves distort your perception, distort essentially reality, because... What you see looks almost metaphysical. But Blavatsky took this one step further and she said, well, if you were looking at a horse off in the distance, but you'd never known anything even remotely close to this idea of a horse. Uh, a modern joke is uh, a camel is a horse uh, built by committee, right? Or someone who'd never seen a horse this joke. But Blavatsky uses this to explain perception. If you've never seen a horse before, how can you, how can you perceive what that might be? Right? So everything is relative. And that's what this uh, story is trying to teach us. Right? So how should I perceive this attempt to simplify the world? Right? How the Autistics connect uh, their dots, as it were. Right, so off from there, it was a very short video. Um, I went into Temple Grandin's TED Talk because, again, I was familiar with Temple Grandin long before I came familiar, became familiar with all of this new thought, right? Even some of my own thoughts. And so, again, I highly recommend Temple Grandin. It's very interesting. I don't know about the movie. I go back to when the movie came out. I didn't find the movie was near as interesting as the lady herself. The lady, uh, the movie was mostly uh, dramatizing her troubles and her challenges and, and highlighting how weird she really was. But it's also a pretty good story. But again, her book, The Autistic Brain, she's trying to talk about uh, this idea that uh, social barrier to healing also this idea of a spectrum. Okay. So uh, she criticizes how she's seeing kids nowadays, and this is why I watched it. It's a fairly recent um, TED Talk she gave. She said she sees smart kids everywhere going nowhere. Because right? she argues we're all on the spectrum. And particularly those who are strongly on the spectrum, they're hiding in their parents' basements, as she said. Right? And so... Temple Grandin, as I said before, she mentioned uh, Malcolm Gladwell's The Outliers, this idea that um, arguably thinking is on a spectrum. Some people are autistic, some people are Asperger's, some people have dyslexia, others just have disabilities because of trauma, because of whatever barrier to, to learning. I experienced it myself. I took, um, I think I've mentioned this before, I was tested very late, so I actually went from... Uh, from advanced to general to back to advanced. And so I took a couple of biologies, two identical biologies, I think it was grade 11 biology, from two different teachers. 
One teacher I aced the course, and the other teacher I flunked. Absolutely flunked. And why? One teacher spoke and was engaging. I didn't realize at the time mindfulness is a big thing, but again, I was already engaged in biology. So to simplify it, the one teacher spoke and spoke and spoke and made some notes, whereas the other teacher did nothing but write on the blackboard the entire class. So it goes beyond the pale that only 25 years ago that a teacher didn't realize how abhorrent it was for him to do nothing but write on the board. Because even then, when they believed in an old theory of, of education that some people learned visually, some people learned auditorily, he should have known that he was uh, separating a number. But I almost guarantee that that teacher was on the spectrum because he was socially inept. Right? So that's probably why. He turned his back to the class. He, he just couldn't. I don't know why he went into teaching, but this is this idea that there's only one way to learn, your way. Every other theory was wrong. That idea of auditory, visual learners, that was just made up by some New Zealand teacher. It's not even based on science. Right? So she talks about how she was uh, a visual thinker and a visual learner. That was her, but she's fully on the spectrum. So it's not that that's the best way that she learned. That was her least dysfunctional avenue to learn, if you get the difference. Once again, this is an ableist perspective to think, oh, well, you learn best by, I think, no, no. I can't learn by looking at you right on a board. I can't learn by this or that. This is the way I best learn. So to ignore uh, this truth, but at the same time, Temple Grandin does make a great point to make us realize that we shouldn't ignore these other areas of learning because we just need to develop more skill in the area. Right? But if time is of the essence, definitely go with the way that you learn most efficiently. Right? And this is this idea, and it's a quote that I marked down all on its own, to get out of the prison of autism. I mean, that's what learning is about. It's an attempt for us to get out of our own self-imposed prison. Right, so she goes on, says we need to build the strengths, right? Uh, but also have build on our strengths, but also we need variety, right? And she mentions how important trades and skills. Again, we need to be supporting these areas of learning because, believe it or not, uh, it takes a very similar amount of creative, outside of the box thinking. I argue. Uh, your average plumber, your average electrician is far more intelligent uh, than your average banker. All right? Me, I, um, I, I firsthand, I've, I've known and I've met these people. That's my, my opinion. Right? Uh, University-educated people does not mean they're incredibly intelligent, they're smart, or that they can even think. Right? Uh, the example I give is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's got 123 IQ, yet it seems like he's really good at uh, repeating... Uh, facts and explaining uh, science that's already been agreed on, but you get him into an area that's, uh, you know, uh, theory. Oof, you start to see that his thinking leaves something to be desired, right? And I say that skill is simply experience that is integrated, right? So you do something mindfully with focus. You learn how to do it. It's kind of like a muscle memory idea. Right? So Temple Grandin feels that change the environment to treat the disorder. This is this social barrier to healing. Uh, okay, so she's mentioning how the autistic brain works. And I argue once again, I don't believe that's how they work. I just believe that that's the best way they work, the particular autistic brain, because I believe we all have these different styles of learning. So she mentions that uh, the autistic brain categorizes to troubleshoot, right? It's the comparative uh, narrative, right? Uh, so she's definitely into pushing, right? Stretch. Like this is, uh, you're either growing or you're atrophying. Uh, you need to challenge the individual, but in an individual way, 
she says, this is how we teach, I say, sorry, this is how we teach language to kids, right? The challenge, you uh, continue to challenge them one level above where they're at, right? And that's what we're getting at. Again, don't push too hard because they'll just shut off. This is where we're looking at. So that's what happens to the dyslexics. If most people can go at 70% speed, you want to put them at 80% speed so they feel a little challenged. That way they'll learn. But if your dyslexic's only comfortable at 60 and you're pushing them at 80, we know via psychology, via education, um, history, whatever you want to call it, that the mind just shuts off. Right? Uh, she mentions that uh, autistic, autistics cannot abstract. I mean, they're less capable, I guess, this idea. If, then, it's all what she says. It's all comparative. Right? They can't do, if this happens, well... Maybe I should do this, but they can't apply it to a different situation, right? Like if they learn something, if I'm swimming, I do this, they can't apply that to biking, the same sort of learned knowledge. I'm not so sure on that. Uh, I think that's just, again, learning how to think and how to, how to parse data. It's all a learned quality. Again, I think uh, Mortimer Alder could teach both autistic and, and, uh, and non-autistic together right? um, so he says uh, for an autistic that people are too chaotic for them to figure out right she says like cows or pandemonium right cows too much confusion they just freeze pandemonium the word itself means like you can't tell up from down if you get it right and that's emotional dysregulation if you think about it trauma can cause this to just about everybody uh, if you're in a state where you don't know what up uh, or down is, you don't have to be autistic to, to suffer from that, right? So that's why I say it's a huge spectrum. Right? And there's a little tidbit for me that I wrote down I'll share with you. She says you need to sell your work, not yourself. This was explaining how uh, to market yourself as an extreme autistic or someone very neurodivergent, uh, how to fit in. Right? So you're not going to sell them on you because they won't understand you. And you'll probably freak them out too. <laughs> so she just she says, uh, show or sell what you can do. Right? Uh, another little note I made, uh, the words vibrate on the page. That's what resonated for me. I'm almost 100% certain. I'm not autistic. I'm not even on the Asperger's. But because I'm so severely dyslexic and the social barriers to healing and all that jazz... I fall under these categories. So I argue uh, we need to expand this beyond just the autistic, not just because not everyone's diagnosed, but I think this Im impinges on everybody's life, right? And she mentioned that colored lenses might help. Uh, that's interesting because the science is shown uh, with the blue light, like I mentioned, on the computer. It's very similar, right? So I'm going to stop this, call this part two. Uh, I'm just going to finish up real quick, but the next stuff is pretty cool. Because it ties everything together. Well, so as I said, I had something really cool that she mentioned in that TED Talk. And it kind of brings everything kind of full circle. At least for my podcast here. Because I talk about healing, inflammation, uh, trauma, stress, uh, Buddhism, uh, you name it, right? Now, neurodivergency because of my dyslexia. So Temple Grandin mentioned that she had colitis. Right, because we see a lot. She infers that we see a lot of people with um, autism with these weird food things, clothes things. Right, but she missed a really big point here. She said that she had colitis, and uh, that's why she ate weird food. I think she said yogurt, and I don't know. I know this because I have a family member with colitis, and when they were young, they ate a lot of rice. And I think we've kind of seen the real truth here. Because she said she took a low dose of antidepressant and it made her colitis go away. And I've talked a lot about the, uh, the mood dysregulations, inflammatory-based disease, even immune-based disease, and its connection to stress, cortisol, anxiety, panic. This kind of proves it. What's even funnier, though, is I don't think she realizes 
his recent study has been showing that she says a low dose because a higher dose of antidepressants is really going to cause her some major issues. I think she mentions a low dose because it's probably not having any sort of effect. Recent study shows that a lot of the healing potential in uh, antidepressants might be placebo. Right? So arguably it makes sense. Because if her colitis, which is an inflammatory-based disease, was flaring when she was stressed, you give her something, a meaning that quickens, that makes her think that this is going to reduce her stress and anxiety. Funny how it does. Right? So here's this full 360 gestalt of mind and body being proven by arguably one of our intelligent people. Right? This is uh, 39, almost 34 minutes into her TED Talk. You can actually go and, and listen to this. It's really eye-opening. Right? Huh. Are the anxiety reduce inflammation the cause of the same result? Right? I, I'm sorry how I wrote that, but uh, cure the, oh, I'm sorry, cure the anxiety, reduce inflammation The cause are the same result, or backwards, I apologize. But uh, what I mean by that is, if you cure the anxiety, you reduce the inflammation. Because both causes are from the same source, and both reversals give you the same result. Meaning, reduce anxiety, reduce inflammation. Reduce inflammation, reduce colitis, you know? So the next section is, I said... When is dyslexia a learning disability? So extreme that it falls onto this spectrum, right? Because Temple Grand had talked about this spectrum, right? How divergent do you have to be before you're no longer typical? In fact, it's funny. This is a, a thought experiment in philosophy. Uh, it's Theseus's boat, I believe. Don't quote me on that, and I'm not going to bother Googling. It's simply this idea that if you go on a journey in this boat, and every stop you make, you rebuild little parts of the boat. At what point is it no longer the same boat? Right? When does it stop being Theseus's boat? It's no longer the original boat. Right? This, of course, is separate from the idea that any boat that Theseus is in is Theseus's boat. No, this is the thought experiment that at what point do you rebuild something so much, so often that you're no longer what you were before, right? At what point can you change who you are? Or at what point does who you are change so much that you're not what you were? The lesson here is we are not our past. We are not our habits. We are not even our deficiencies. We're not our skills. We are the collection. This is the gestalt. We need to stop seeing ourselves as pieces, yet the world as patterns. We need to understand that you cannot separate the pattern from the pieces, but you can't ignore the pieces for the pattern, right? This is this idea that if we don't endeavor to raise all boats, we leave everyone behind because this is what I'm getting at. Theseus's boat can be applied to typical thinking. Right? If there are no two people that think the same, is there such a thing as typical cognition? So if we go around labeling neurodivergent, neurotypical, is this not theater? Is this not Theseus's boat? Right? So she goes on. Uh, and she speaks of a broad spectrum. And I ask, is she making my case that we are all on the spectrum in that there is only one way to think, your way? Right? What would the CAT scans that showed TG's brain as atypical? Would it show a similar picture of mine? Because right? I talked about how I think I made up for my dyslexia with my language center of the brain. Because as I said, I wasn't tested till late. Why? Because I was able to get by because of how well I spoke and how good my memory was. 
right? Because I could listen in class, didn't read the books, and I could play it off as I'm too lazy. Of course, everyone's cool with that, but no one ever stopped and meant maybe he can't read. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I said, would my theory of my language center be what made up for my areas of dysfunction? Is this adaptation like a trauma? Trauma theory in dysfunctions, right? Does it work both ways, right? Are we traumatized by our disability because it originally was imposed by some sort of trauma, something that happened that was atypical, <laughs> caused a maladaptation, right? I call it trauma-informed adaptations. So this is no different, right? If we take almost everybody who falls into some spectrum and we force all of them to conform, is it outside the realm of possibility that the majority of these individuals will feel some sort of malaise, some sort of disconnect from themselves and reality because they're being told they should think and feel and act a certain way. They know they think and feel and act another way and yet they see around them people conforming. It causes this um, a disconnect. Right? So solve this broad spectrum. She argues to get rid of fluorescent lighting, quiet places to work. Uh, they also say they might need places for breaks where they could go calm down. She says no sudden surprises. I love that she uses that word, right? Because that uh, screams of Friston's free energy again, right? Because surprise is to find out that your predictions or your expectations were wrong. And how you manage that surprise. Surprise is guaranteed. Trauma is guaranteed. Our perception and how we manage it is the difference. That's why I say the tragedy of trauma. Because trauma does not have to be a tragedy. It can be uh, informative. It can be educational. It can be revolutionary. It can be all sorts of things. Yet, once again, we're all being shaped to conform that trauma is... A negative thing because that's where we're getting this pushback because so many people say well no it doesn't have to be right? uh, and finally she says no scratchy clothes and it's funny she says this because it's funny uniforms tend to be really crappy clothes scratchy type clothes right uh, but so that's where I'm at I haven't finished uh, the Temple Grandin episode if uh, she mentions anything salient in the last 20 minutes, I'll, of course, mention it and add it. Uh, but uh, other than that, um, that's part three.